Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. There's a lot of information packed in this episode. So first, we're going to be talking about the first census of the Israelites and where they camped around the tabernacle. Then we're going to talk about the census of the Levites and how they were used to redeem the firstborn children of Israel to the Lord and then what their specific duties were and where they camped around the tabernacle. And then we're going to end with our own redemption and service to the Lord. This is lesson 13 of the God's Dwelling Place study. And we're going to be going over Numbers 1, 2, 3, and 4, and also Romans 6. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes, and once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. On the last episode, we talked about the second Passover and also how the Levites were set apart for the Lord. And if you happen to miss that episode, you're going to want to go back and listen to it because we talked about the rules of the Levites, but also additional guidelines for the second Passover. And that led us into a discussion about nations and what each nation's rights can be according to that passage. This week, we're going to talk about the first census, and God is preparing the people to leave Mount Sinai and head towards the promised land, and so he's giving them their last set of instructions, and the first thing that he wants them to do is count all the men that are the age of 20 and above, because these are the fighting age men. And they're going to encounter a fight when they go into the promised land. And they need to know how many people there are. They also need to know how many people there are because God is going to give them their camping arrangements when they stop. And it'll be beneficial to them to know how many men are camping on each side of the tabernacle. Now, we are not going to read these passages because they are a difficult read. It's very monotonous to read this, and that's the reason a lot of people talk about, oh, I hate beginning in the first of the Bible and reading through because you'll hit numbers and you'll stop. I hear that all the time. And yes, if you read this through as if it's a book, then it is going to be monotonous. The reason, though, that it's written this way is because they were using this first as a record for each tribe, and then they would also read this to the whole congregation. And when each tribe heard its name, then they would begin listening for their number and for their camping arrangements. And so it's written for each tribe to be listening for their information. But when we read it, It's just repeating things over and over and over and over again. 
and it's a difficult read. And so what I've done is if you get the study, you'll see all of this information in a listed form. And today what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go over this information for you without giving you the numbers and all of those things. So if you want that information, you're going to need to look in the Bible or buy this study, which again is really cheap, but it gives this information in the form of a list and it's much easier than trying to read all of this. But what the first couple of chapters are telling us is that they finished the tabernacle and the Levites have been anointed for its service. And now it's time for them to prepare for the journey to the promised land. And so on the first day of the second month, only two weeks after they celebrated that second Passover that we talked about last week, and only a month after the tabernacle has been erected, God tells Moses to count the people. And so Moses chooses one man from each tribe to help count the fighting men of that tribe and then report back to him. And so it gives the name of the men in each tribe of Israel in these first passages. And then again, they're listed in the charts. And it also tells how the Levites are not considered in this count because the Levites are never going to go to war. Their service is only to the Lord in relation to the tabernacle and the priests. And so when they traveled, the Levites would tear down and carry and rebuild the tabernacle. And once it was set up, then they would encamp around the tabernacle as guards. And then the rest of the tribes would encamp around them. And in this study, I made a list of the tribes and who their mothers were. But just as a quick recap for understanding, in case you didn't go through the Jacob study with us, Jacob had 12 sons by four different women. He wanted to marry Rachel and he worked seven years to marry Rachel. But whenever the wedding day came, his father-in-law Laban gave him her sister Leah instead as a wife. And when he woke up the next morning, he realized he had married the wrong woman. And when he went to Laban and talked to Laban about it, he said, I know, I'm sorry. I know you wanted Rachel, but it's not our custom to marry off the younger sister before the older one has been married. And Leah does not have a husband yet, and she's the oldest. And so he said, if you'll finish this week out of marriage with her, then I will give you Rachel also, but you'll need to work another seven years for Rachel. And so Jacob did this. Well, because... God knew that Leah was not the one that Jacob loved. He kind of evened the scales out a bit by allowing Leah to have children and Rachel not to be able to have any children for him. And so that kept Jacob coming back to Leah because Leah was giving him sons. But then he also went back to Rachel because he loved her. And so Leah had four sons for Jacob. And after that, when Rachel realized she wasn't having any children, she gave him her maidservant, Bilhah, and Jacob had two sons by Bilhah. Then when Leah realized she had stopped having children, then she gave her maidservant, Zilpah, to him, and he had two children by Zilpah. Then Leah had two more sons after her maidservant, 
And finally, God allowed Rachel to have children and Jacob and Rachel had two sons together. So that totals 12 children. And these 12 children made up the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And these are the Israelites. And so this first chapter gives the count of each one of the tribes of Israel, each one of the sons of Jacob. And it recites them in the order of Leah's sons and then Rachel's sons and then Rachel's maidservants' sons and then lastly, Leah's maidservants. With the exception of Gad, Gad was the child of Leah's maidservant Zilpah and Gad took the place of Levi in the order because remember, we're not counting Levi. And so when it came to the third son of Leah, instead of listing Leah's third son, it took Leah's first son, Gad, through her maidservant Zilpah and put him in her place. And then Asher, Zilpah's second son, was added to Bilhah's children as the last tribe listed. Also, something you need to know about this order is that when Jacob was giving out the blessings to all of his sons before he died, he told Joseph that the two sons that had been born to Joseph in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, would be considered Jacob's own sons. So they would be adopted as tribes of Israel. And so instead of it being the tribe of Joseph, it was the two tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. And that gave a total of 12 tribes since we've taken Levi away, keeping the count the same. And when they had counted all of the 12 tribes, excluding the tribe of Levi and adding these two sons of Joseph, they totaled to the number of 603,550 men 20 years old and over that were able to fight. And so depending on the number of each one's children, this gave an estimated 2 to 5 million Israelites a year after the Exodus. It's a lot, a lot of people. And once they'd been counted, God explained where each tribe would set up camp whenever they stopped along the way. And so when they stopped, the Levites would begin setting up the tabernacle and then three tribes of Israel would set up their encampments on each side facing the tabernacle. And so Leah's sons and Gad camped on the east and the south sides because they made up six tribes altogether. Leah had six sons and one of them was Levi and Gad had taken his place. So they camped on the east and the south sides of the tabernacle. Rachel's sons camped on the west side. Rachel's sons were Benjamin and Joseph, but Joseph had two tribes. So it was the tribes of Benjamin and then Ephraim and Manasseh camped on the west side. And then the maidservants' sons camped on the north side which was Leah's maidservant, Zilpah's remaining son, and then Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah's two sons, Asher and Naphtali. Stick with me. I know this is a lot of stuff, but by the end, we're going to talk about how this pertains to us. So stick with me. Now, the leader of each set of tribes had a flag with his name on it, and it stood on each side of the tabernacle. And then there were banners with the name of each tribe at their encampments. 
And when they traveled, Leah's three youngest sons were in the front and her two oldest sons, along with Gad, were second in line. Then the Levites stayed in the middle with the tabernacle and the holy things to keep them safe. And then behind the tabernacle traveled Rachel's sons and the maidservant's sons. This is how they were to travel. So he's telling them, these are your numbers. These are your leaders. This is how you're going to camp. Make sure you have the leader of each side's flag with you when you set out to camp. And then when you camp, set that flag up. And then each household, each tribe will have its own banner that stays with its household and travels with it and then camps with it. And this is the order that you're supposed to walk in whenever you're traveling and then how you're supposed to camp. And then the first part of the third chapter and the last part of the fourth chapter tells about the census of the Levites. And so once they finished taking count of all the rest of the tribes, then God told them to count the Levites in two separate ways. And Levi had three sons and their names were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And Gershon and Merari each had two sons. And then Kohath had four sons. And one of Kohath's four sons was named Amram. And that was Aaron and Moses' father. And then Moses had two sons, but we don't really hear much about them at all. But Aaron's four sons became the priests. And remember, two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu, had died because they offered profane fire before the Lord. And so there's only two sons left. And those sons' names are Eleazar and Ithamar, and they make up the priesthood, Aaron and those two sons. And so as with the other tribes, Moses elected a man from each one of those three tribes to assist him in the count, and that was the leader of their tribes. And so first they counted all of the males that were one month old and above, and that totaled to be 22,000. Then they counted all the men from the ages of 30 to 50 to see how many of the Levites were able to do the work of the tabernacle. And that came to 8,580. And during this time, they were also given their camping arrangements and their service duties. And so Gershon's family was to camp behind the tabernacle and they were in charge of all the curtains and the courtyard furniture whenever they would set up the tabernacle and when they would tear it down and when they would carry it, these were the things that they were in charge of. Marari's family was in charge of all the frames and the bars and the pillars and the bases that pertain to the courtyard and the tabernacle. And they camped on the northern side. And then since the priests were from the family of Kohath, because remember the priests were Aaron and his sons, and they were from the family of Kohath. Then Kohath's family were the ones that were responsible for the sanctuary because only the priests were allowed to enter the sanctuary. And so Kohath's family had the sacred duty of caring for the furniture that was within the tabernacle. And they camped to the south side of the tabernacle. And then Moses and the priests camped on the east side of the tabernacle, which was the entrance to the tabernacle. And they guarded that entrance because the priests were in charge of everything that went on inside of the courtyard and the tabernacle. They camped at the entrance of the courtyard. And Eleazar was the overseer of the Levites. 
and he cared for the sanctuary. And then Ithamar, the other priest, was the overseer of the other two tribes. And all the details about them are also listed in the study. Now, here's where we begin to get to the application part of this story or what is even pertinent to the application part of this study. And so at the end of chapter three, God tells Moses to count the firstborn males that are one month old and above from all the rest of the tribes. He's already counted the one month old and above of the Levites. And that number came to 22,000. And now he's counting the firstborn males of the rest of the tribes. And that number comes to 22,273. And so he used those Levites. Remember, the Levites are taken in place of Israel's firstborn. But there's only 22,000 of the Levites. And there's 22,273 of the firstborn males of the Israelites. And so... For those extra 273 children that haven't been redeemed by the Levites, God tells Moses to require two ounces of silver to be given for each one of those. And so they gave almost 34 pounds of silver to redeem the remaining 273 firstborn sons of Israel. And then at the first of chapter 4, The instructions for the tearing down and the carrying of the tabernacle and its furniture were given. And these are very specific instructions and they had to be carried out carefully. This tent that they're building and tearing down is where the spirit of the Lord lived. And so this is God's house and within his house held all of the holy things. And so they had to be handled with care and with reverence. And so when it was time for the Israelites to move, because the priests were the only ones that were allowed inside the sanctuary, they had to pack all the furniture that was within the sanctuary before it could be carried by the Levites. And then when they finished, then the Kohathites would carry these holy things. And since Eleazar was the priest that was in charge of the Kohathites, he carried the oils and the grain offerings. And when the Levites carried these things, they had to be carried so as to not touch these things or even see them uncovered. Because remember, only the priest could see them or touch them. And if they did not abide by these specific rules, then God had the right to kill them for their irreverence. And the Kohathites carried them, but they couldn't see or touch them. The priests when they take the veil down that separated the holy place from the most holy place, they were to take that veil and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. And then they would take goat skin and cover the veil with the goat skin. And then they would cover the goat skin with a blue cloth and they would add the poles to the Ark of the Covenant. And then the Levites would carry the Ark of the Covenant with the poles with these three curtains covering the golden Ark. And then when they would pack the table, they would cover the table with a blue cloth. They would put all of the utensils and all of the bread on that blue cloth and then cover it with a scarlet cloth and then cover that scarlet cloth with goat skin, add the poles to the table, and then the Kohathites would carry that table with those poles. Then they would take the altar of incense that was within the holy place and they would cover it with a blue cloth then a goat skins and add the poles so that the Kohathites could carry it 
They would also take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand, add all the utensils within that cloth, cover that with goat skin, and then put the lampstand, remember, because it didn't have poles, they would put it on a carrying frame and the Kohathites would carry the lampstand in that way. Then they would take all of the vessels that were used in the ministry of the tabernacle and they would cover all of those things with a blue cloth and then the goat skin and then put them on the carrying frame along with the lampstand. And then lastly, they even packed the furniture that was in the courtyard. And so they would take the ashes outside of the camp and then cover the bronze altar with a purple cloth, put all of the utensils that are used for the bronze altar on the blue cloth, and then cover that with goat skin, add the poles, and then the Gershonites would carry the bronze altar. So now that we know how everything was packed up, I'm going to give you a quick summary and then we're going to talk about how this pertains to us. And so when they would begin to pack up, the priests would pack in this exact way that he told them. And then each one of the three sons of Levi would come and pick up what it was that they were supposed to tear down and carry. And then the Israelites would set out with Leah's three youngest sons in the front and then her two oldest along with Gad next in line. And then those three sons of Levi and their tribes would carry the tabernacle there in the middle of the line. And then behind the tabernacle would be Rachel's sons. And then at the end of the line would be Leah's maidservants, one remaining son, and Rachel's maidservants, sons at the end. And they would walk like this as long as the cloud was moving because the glory cloud guided them and told them where to go and when to stop. And when the cloud would stop, they would stop and the Levites would begin setting up the tabernacle along with the priests and then each tribe would camp where God told them to camp around the Levites that had encamped around the tabernacle. And then when the cloud lifted up, they would pack up and go again, just as God had told them. So that is the summary of what happened. Now, what does that have to do with us? Why was God doing all of this with the Israelites at this time? Because as we've been talking about through this whole study, he was preparing the people for Jesus. And so he was preparing them specifically with this for the future redemption that Jesus was going to bring through the Levites. Israel had given their firstborn sons to the Lord, but God allowed them to buy their own sons back by giving the Levites to God instead. And so that's what redemption is. Redemption is the buying back of something that belongs to you in the beginning. The word's often used for slaves because they were buying back their own freedom. Freedom was theirs in the beginning. And when they buy back their freedom, the freedom that had been lost somewhere along the way, they're redeeming what belonged to them in the beginning, which was their freedom. And so we are all created by God. Therefore, we all belong to him from the very beginning, but we gave ourselves over as slaves to sin. And then Jesus redeems us back for God. So I want to read you a verse that talks about this. John 8, 
31 to 35. It explains this concept. Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will make us free? And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave doesn't abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So he's using this same analogy of slavery that we were talking about before in redemption. And so he said, you did belong to God, but then you became a slave to your sin. And so I buy you back and I make you free. And so when I make you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus bought us back. He paid the price that was required for our sins. He exchanged his life for ours. Think of redemption like a coupon. Somebody already paid for this item and then they give us this coupon. They say, I paid for this. Here's the coupon. You can take this coupon and you can go and exchange it for the item in the store. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus paid the price for our sins. And then he gives us this coupon. He gives this coupon to every single person on this earth because he paid the price for every single person. But in order to receive what he paid for, which is our salvation, we have to take that coupon and we have to offer that coupon that has his blood on it. And we have to give it to God on behalf of our sins. Just like if someone paid for something for us and they gave us this coupon, but we never take it to the store to redeem it, then we never receive that item. It's the same with Jesus. If we don't take what he paid for us on the cross to God on behalf of our specific sins, then we don't receive that salvation. What a shame it is that there are people that don't take that coupon that Jesus paid for to God on behalf of their sins and receive the salvation that he already paid for. You see how that works? Listen to what it says in Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse should the punishment be, do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God under his feet? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. So that he says that's what we do. If we don't take that coupon and give it to God on our behalf, then it's as if we trampled Jesus under our feet. We counted it a common thing, like it was nothing, like it meant nothing what he did for us on the cross. When we don't take that coupon to God and say, I want to give you what Jesus sacrificed on my behalf. I accept that. I accept what Jesus sacrificed on my behalf and I want to give it to you, Lord. And I want you to take it and give me salvation in its place. If we don't do that, then there is no sacrifice for us because the sacrifice didn't count for us. It only counts for the people that go to God with the offering in hand. 
And so that is us receiving the redemption. But if you want to think about God paying for our redemption, then you can think of it like a receipt. We buy an item from the store and then we decide we don't want it anymore. So we take that item back with the receipt and they buy it back from us. That's what God did. But the people at the store, they won't buy it back unless it's in the same condition as it was when they sold it to us, right? But what a wonderful thing we have in Jesus because he buys us back when we aren't in the same condition as we were when he created us. We're completely used up, completely destroyed, completely broken. And Jesus buys us back in that condition. The store would not do that. If we had used the whole item up or it was broken or damaged, then they wouldn't buy it back. But Jesus buys us back in that exact condition. He knows that we can't be in the same condition, but you know what he does? He puts us in that condition. He makes us whole and complete and righteous before he gives us back to God. So whenever God receives us, we are in that perfect condition. When we enter his eternal presence, God sees us as whole, as righteous. We are in the perfect condition to enter his presence because Jesus gave us his righteousness, his completion, his wholeness, his purity. And so Jesus buys us when we're damaged and used up. And then he makes us whole and complete and righteous and presents us to God. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians five fourteen to 17. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. That if one died for all, then all of us died. And he did die for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when we die with Jesus, then we raise again as a new creation with all of our old damaged self passing away. We rise again anew with him, becoming a new creation in the perfect condition for God to receive us. And because of that, because of what Jesus did for us, then we should live worthy of that sacrifice. No longer for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. And so like the Levites, we belong to the Lord now. We've been redeemed. Just like the Levites were redeemed for the service of the Lord, we have been redeemed by Jesus for the service of the Lord. And so we too should dedicate our lives to him because the price has been paid for us. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9, all the way through verse 14. And it says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard, we do not cease to pray for you, that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of Him, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy 
giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So because Jesus redeemed us with His blood, we've been forgiven of our sins We've been set free from the power of the darkness. And now we should live and walk in his ways, being filled with understanding and wisdom, walking worthy of the sacrifice that he made. This is what's going to please him, is if we have the fruit of his spirit in every good work, increasing in knowledge and in strength, being patient with joy, giving thanks, all of these things that are written in this passage. This is how we are to live our lives because we've been redeemed by Jesus's blood. So whenever God was taking these Levites and redeeming them, he was doing this to point them to Jesus, to teach them the doctrine of redemption so that they understood it. So when they saw Jesus, they would understand. They would be able to say, I see what's happening. First, God redeemed our firstborn sons with the Levites, and now he's redeeming all of us to his service with his son. I want to end by reading you Romans chapter 6. This gives us the full picture of redemption from our slavery to sin into this new life. So it says, what should we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace will abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in our newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ our Lord. That's the gist of it, right? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it and its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slaves to obey? You are that one slave whom you obey, whether it is sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked 
that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So because Jesus redeemed us, we need to die to our sin, let it be buried with him, and then let our lives be raised again with him and live in this new gift that has been given to us, this grace that was his death. And we need to live for him because he died for us. So we're going to end there. Next week, we will talk about further dedicating ourselves to him and then how we can further live and walk in his ways. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that episode. Leave me a five-star review. That helps me out a lot. And then also you can leave comments wherever it is that you're listening right now, or you can email me. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. Thanks and have a good day. Mm-hmm.